Sunshine Live Radio Music Podcasts. Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Live Podcast with your host Sylvia Cunningham. Welcome to Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Today's show is about the state of our democracy, what it means to be active in our democracy, how we fight for our values, even when it's not convenient. As always, we'll be hearing perspectives from the U.S. and Germany. But before we get started, I have some news to share. After a year and a half of producing Tearing Down Walls, this will be my last episode as host for now. It has been an honor navigating a whole range of topics with you all. We've spoken with more than 70 guests, bringing people from both sides of the Atlantic together in transatlantic conversations. I have learned so much, um, and I hope you've learned something, too. Sunshine Live is committed to continuing the transatlantic dialogue, so be sure to stay tuned in 2023. And now, on to our show. Our first guest is Berlin-based DJ and musician Sarah Farina. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I want to start off by talking about your sets. You coined the term rainbow bass to describe what you do. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so rainbow bass is a term that I came up with to introduce the music I love to others. And, you know, for me, vibrations of everything I listen to, everything I play, that basically translate into color. And in a rainbow, you know, all the colors are connected to each other. And that's how I look at music, like all the genres are connected to each other. And it's like a spectrum. And personally, I'm not such a fan of putting my music into categories. And this term just gives me more freedom and also rainbows are cute <laughs> and uh, this also reflects like the queerness and club culture for me and of course bass because that's the frequency that you can feel in your body when you're in the club. So along with Kerstin Meissner, the other half of your networking platform transmission, you've produced a podcast series called Politics of the Dance Floor and it looks at the relationship between raving and resistance and how social justice might manifest or what it looks like on the dance floor. In the podcast series you talked about solidarity, sustainability and a reset. What has been your mission with this project? Our mission was to give space to these topics that are often left out in club culture and to invite people to join us to learn more together about the political potential of dance floors and to look at the history in order to understand the present better and then to create a more inclusive future and, and joyful future and better dance floors, of course. And it was just really a lovely experience. How would you describe the state of Berlin's club culture now in 2022 after nearly three years of the pandemic behind us? What I'm noticing that like we still have many clubs compared to other places in the world, which is great, but still many clubs had to close. Many clubs are really still struggling and it's getting so expensive. I mean, everything is getting expensive. That's not just a, pro a Berlin problem, obviously. But I really do wonder, like, who will or who's ending up on those dance floors? It's just the bourgeoisie dan dancing on a dance floor at the end of the day. And if you think about where club culture came from, it definitely came not from the bourgeoisie. And um, it's like people who make those places so special and shape them are being left out. And there are also people who really have the community in those spaces. And some of them really need it for survival because it's the only place where they can truly be themselves without being harmed. And um, I think the nightlife participants, clubs, DJs, ravers, bookers, like we need to find a way to come together and start looking for solutions because the money aspect is really 
a huge problem. So in this episode, we'll be talking about our democracies from different perspectives. How important do you think club culture is for our democracy? I think it's very important because I think it's the only place where we can come together like this. There's no other scenario where I can think of like mostly strangers spending hours together in one room and dancing (laughs) and let loose. And it's also something natural, I think, something very social and moving our bodies is very human. Uh, Maybe thousands of years ago, we were dancing around the fire and people were taking, drinking ayahuasca. (laughs) Maybe that was like the first rave that ever happened. I don't know. Um, There's probably no culture that hasn't invented dance or music. And it can be the freedom, a space where you can have the freedom uh, to self-express. And having a good party where people can self-express can give you a glimpse of what the world could look like if people can be their true authentic self, especially people who are oppressed or have those oppressed identities. And as I said, you know, like they have this potential of creating new forms of care and solidarity. And for me personally, it's an important reminder that we are so much more than just our jobs. And it's a place where you can practice some form of hopefulness and a good party to me is a form of a joyful resistance. Is that kind of what being a political person means to you? Like, yeah, I don't know, using the dance floor to resist, for example, is that how you engage with politics or? Yeah, definitely, because it's um, not easy to be like, okay, where does my freedom start? Where does it end? And all of these complexities and being political to me means like that I'm open to challenge myself and that I'm getting out of my comfort zone to learn more about myself, about my privileges or the part of my identities and of my body that are being oppressed and to look at how we are all in the system and how we relate to each other and how they affect us on different levels and to recognize that. And just to also see that everyone has some kind of power in their daily lives, of course, so much more than others. But that small bit of power that I have that comes with a responsibility and I want to make sure that I use it for something that creates a more caring world. And it's about like how we interact with each other on like an interpersonal level and the questions that we ask ourselves and others and that we're really listening to understand instead of just to respond. So this is one part where I feel like this is very political and just comes very natural to me. But also I love how music, how you can use music as a tool to engage with politics like I do with transmission or when I host DJ workshops or when I speak on panels. And music just has this beautiful, unique power to bring people together in ways like nothing else. It's something universal. So one of the original ideas behind this show, Tearing Down Walls, was examining the transatlantic relationship And not only in terms of what we can learn from each other or understand about each other, but also in terms of the power dynamic between the United States and Germany and this kind of relationship that Germany used to maybe look up to the United States. And it seems like the U.S. has had this sort of fall from grace or maybe it's not even a fall from grace. It's just a a realization of, of kind of all the problems coming to the surface that you know, many people have been talking about for decades and decades and haven't been recognized for or listened to. What's been your reflection about the U.S.? Have you noticed this transatlantic dynamic has shifted even in your lifetime? It's crazy that I know so much more about the U.S. 
than other, any other country in the world. It's centered so much in our politics and in conversations. And I think that's really problematic because if you look at the history and how the U.S. was built, there's nothing to look up to. And to me, it comes down, down to decolonize our minds and bodies. And the U.S. is a colonial, like they colonize people. And I think we need to allow ourselves to dream and vision a future that hasn't been there. Like allow ourselves to think outside of the box. Like how could a world look like where we really show up for each other and create those different forms of care and also move away from punitive justice where the US is also really big in, like with the prison uh, industry complex and all of these things. Like how does it even look like to have transformative justice to invite people to do better you know to I mean it sounds cheesy but you know what I mean like just more kindness I guess it's interesting because it's like this world that doesn't exist yet kind of like working towards that because I mean it doesn't seem like you're saying Germany is doing it better or that it should be this role reversal and the U.S. should follow Germany now that's not what you're saying either no no not at all no And also, if you look at the history of the of Germany, it's uh, it's I mean. really bad, yeah. Um, and and to me, I feel like we can learn a lot from indigenous culture and people because it's actually not that true what I said that it hasn't been there. There are some parts in the world where people already practiced forms of being with each other that were really mindful and um, had modest transformative justice approach in indigenous cultures. Um, Yeah, so that's why we need to learn more about history and also uh, look at what we, what kind of history we're learning about and if we can decolonize that because history is written by the winners, right? So that's also problematic. Sarah Farina is a Berlin-based DJ and musician. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. On today's show, we're hearing different perspectives on the state of our democracies. Our next guest is a person Sunshine Live listeners will already be very familiar with. It's Kata. She is one of the hosts of BPM, Beats Per Morning, airing weekday mornings on Sunshine Live. Thanks for joining me, Kata. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to be on the show and the podcast today. So I want to start with the show you host, BPM. You've been hosting Beats Per Morning for several years. What do you like to bring to the show? What's, what's your goal every time you're in front of the mic? to bring the music to the people that just wake up, getting ready in the morning, to bring everyone very good into the new day so that they can start school, work, whatever they're up to, to give them a positive vibe for their start in the day, really. That's our main goal. When did you start listening to electronic music? That's a good question, actually. Um, I was born in the early 90s, so when I was in elementary school, Eurodance was really big. And I remember my first dance party at um, a school trip, actually. It was in third grade, and I fell in love with the music of Gigi D'Agostino. Uh, still uh, maybe a little guilty pleasure of mine, <laughs> still a favorite today. And then the Smurfs were really big with doing compilations with cover versions of popular songs at that time. And they um, also did a compilation called Techno is Cool. And I remember my neighbor had it and I went to her house all the time to just listen to the CD. And it was covers of all the rave classics like Tears Don't Like from Mark O and uh, Saturday Night from Wickfield and so on. And I just fell in love with the music at that age. And then um, fast forward in my early 20s when I started clubbing, going out, I was very uh, lucky to have 
have friends that um, got me into all the techno clubs in Berlin. And I really got to love the music, the vibe, the whole community. And of course, I'm very lucky to live in Berlin where we have that much variety of electronic clubs. Of course, Tearing Down Walls is a transatlantic show, so we have to ask you, do you have a connection to the U.S. and the music scene there? Not really to the music scene, I have to say, but I have some personal relations to um, people in the U.S. And I really appreciate that. And also the cultural exchange, we talk about um, topics a lot. And yeah, that's very valuable to me. One of the ideas that sparked tearing down walls in the first place was this idea that the reputation of the U.S. has really gone down in the eyes of Germans and Europeans. I'm wondering if you've looked at the U.S. differently. Definitely. And I actually talked about that uh, with a friend of mine who uh, lives in central Florida. And um, we talk a lot about cultural differences or um, just any differences about our lives here and there. And um, I recently noticed that uh, when I grew up, you know, for us in Germany, the American occupation after World War II had a really big impact also culturally. And um, the American way of living was promoted like the most desirable like going to New York City was everyone's dream and stuff like that and um, we focused our culture so much on the US it's crazy to think about it um, now and to reflect on it and um, to realize that also our perception of um, the US has maybe changed and um, maybe gotten a little more balanced and what I try to do is just to understand each other and to learn from each other without judging too much. You mentioned talking with your friend in central Florida and these cultural differences. I think some people think of the U.S. and Germany and they think, oh, you know, they're not that different. Um, but in fact, there are a lot of differences. What would you say some of the differences are? Oh, you know, just everyday life uh, stuff. We, With my friend, we talk a lot about... You know, from the bottle deposit system in Germany, um, over he's um, homeschooling his kids, with uh, which is not a thing over here and not allowed in Germany. Just the the everyday things, and I think it's important to get a better understanding of each other through those everyday life um, stuff. Um, to also understand maybe um, the bigger topics like democracy, um, political interests, and all that stuff. In what ways do you feel like? U.S. politics and the political discourse there affects Germany's political discourse. I feel like it's still important for us to watch what's going on in the U.S. But I also feel like, as I said earlier, it's much more balanced now. The U.S. is still important in the world politics, but it's not seen anymore as the leading country, especially over here in Germany. I think, um, yeah, we have developed from that a little bit. So it's it's still important for us, but it doesn't affect us in our opinions so much anymore. Kata is one of the hosts of BPM Beats Per Morning, which airs Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sunshine Live. Thanks again for joining me, Kata. Thanks for having me. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM, out of West Haven. This is Tearing Down Walls. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. On today's show, we're hearing from people on both sides of the Atlantic about the strengths and weaknesses of our democracies and institutions. Joining me now is Therese Matisse. She's an assistant professor of empirical democracy research at the University of Trier. Her doctoral thesis, completed in 2020, was about how voters punish government parties for breaking their pledges, which I am very curious to hear more about. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
So you study political parties, voting, representation, among many other topics. What types of questions excite you most? Uh, yeah, so as you already mentioned, uh, I study kind of a lot of topics. Um, and yeah, I'm interested in different kinds of questions. So it's about uh, comparative politics. So often I try to compare different countries, political parties, also citizens, uh, their trust and mistrust in political parties, uh, voting and political inequality. And um, in particular, I've been working on electoral promises, um, both from the perspective of parties, but also from the perspective of citizens. And I think one of the most puzzling findings so far is that we know that parties kind of fulfill a lot of pledges, but citizens don't think so. Wow, that is super interesting because it is that they're doing the work but not getting the credit for it. It's truly the the worst of both worlds there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I think there are also good reasons or there I have some answers in my head <laughs> that might explain why there is this gap. But nevertheless, I mean, it's it's hard for parties and democracy and also citizens. So why is there this kind of miscommunication, misinformation? Um, I mean, it also kind of touches the question of what is a promise uh, from the perspective of citizens. Because, I mean, as a scientist, I have a certain definition of pledges. I say that this, these are like quite specific policies that are broken or fulfilled, but maybe citizens have a much more abstract idea of pledges, more about uh, equality, sustainability in general, and not really about specific pledges uh, such as uh, minimum wage or um, like certain kind of policies that are really tiny sometimes. You're working on a project that monitors the performance of the German government in regards to the fulfillment of its coalition pledges since 2013. Can you tell us a bit about what you've researched so far? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so we have identified um, specific pledges that were met in the coalition programs of the so-called Grand Coalitions. <laughs> um, so the coalition of the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats formed in um, 2013 and 2017 or rather to say, uh, 2018. And we identified 200 um, of these very specific pledges in the coalition program of 2013 and 300 in the second coalition. And yeah, we found that most pledges are actually fulfilled. So it is not true <laughs> that um, parties obviously do not fulfill their pledges. Mostly 80% of pledges were um, fully or at least partially fulfilled. What we also find was that um, it was kind of a COVID effect um, for the last government. So we already kind of published a study after two years, so kind of half time of the legislative period. And then we found that um, most of the pledges were either already fulfilled or at least kind of in the process of enactment. And we find that some of the very salient pledges, such as no public debt, um, were not fulfilled. I mean, there are good reasons, at least for this pledge, um, since there it was necessary um, to have some state aid for enterprises, artists, etc. But this is the one of the pledges that were um, not fulfilled. And what would be an example of a pledge that was fulfilled? So, yeah, for example, um, there was a pledge about um, raising the amount of police officers in Germany. Um, this was a pledge that was fulfilled. Also, uh, we had this kind of Baukindergeld. If you have a family, if you have children, then you get money um, for building a house, kind of a support by the state. Mm -hmm. um, so these were, were pledges that were fulfilled, um, for mm -hmm. example. 
it's interesting because in Germany, with the number of parties that there are to vote for, if a party doesn't fulfill its pledge, you can then maybe shift your vote to a different party the next election. In the U.S., that that doesn't really feel like a choice. I mean, for example, if you're a Democratic voter and the party says it will put abortion into law uh, nationwide and then doesn't, it's not like you'll have a better shot if you vote for the Republicans. So do you think that more parties um, in a parliamentary system are, are beneficial to a democracy and, and, and pledge fulfillment? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of differences between the U.S. and um, Germany. It's not only the number of parties, but of course, the, the political system, presidential versus parliamentarian system. I mean, this is um, already important to start with because um, there's a different idea of separation of powers, right? The head of executive is voted directly in the U.S. and in, in Germany. Um, you just vote the MPs and then they... Um, like the, the government needs majority of the MPs in parliament. I, I think in general, um, I'm kind of a fan rather of the um, parliamentarian multi-party system. But I mean, it's a trade-off um, that you have. If you have less parties, um, the advantage is that it is much easier to distinguish different parties. Usually, I mean, they have a rather clear profile. You have a party A and party B, so you really know what they kind of stand for. Um, and there's also what we call a higher clarity of responsibility. Um, so it is easier for citizens to know who's responsible for policy outputs and outcomes. Um, if you have a lot of parties, sometimes clarity of responsibility is kind of blurred. Um, so it's it's much more difficult to know who's responsible. I want to ask you about the last state election in, in 2021 in Berlin, because Berlin's constitutional court recently ruled that the election has to be repeated because of serious systemic flaws. And I just was thinking from a research perspective, this must be amazing fodder for you, um, because it's been about a year uh, of the of the current Berlin government's tenure. I mean, so what better way to test if they're holding their pledges than if the same parties are voting back in? Do you see it that way? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's true from a scientific perspective. It's interesting. Uh, but honestly, it's just embarrassing. <laughs> it's a total organizational chaos. So, yeah, I'm I'm not really, I mean, I'm not involved, but I'm not really proud of it as a German citizen. Um, I mean, yeah. So today's show has been about the state of our democracies and I'm wondering, has your research and, you know, even being surprised at, at some of your findings that governments do hold their coalition pledges, has that made you feel kind of more content with uh, the democracy that you live in? Well, that's a hard question. Um, I think uh, on the one hand, yes, um, of course, because I was also surprised by, by these findings. Um on the other hand, um, I think there are a lot of challenges because the, the most important question is why does this translate into citizens' per perceptions? Um, and uh, this is not only what we see uh, if we talk about pledges, but also about other things like performances in general. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I kind of struggle with it. And in particular, if you think about, uh, you know, like... Uh, parties, often populist parties, who blame uh, mainstream parties um, that they do not keep their pledges. So they kind of try to reinforce um, this image that exists about parties, politicians that, that do not care. Um, I think we, we have a real problem. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I also kind of try to 
at least I think there is some missing information. And this is what I try to also do with my studies to bring more information about the actual, um, actual performance that parties have. And we definitely cannot say that they do not fulfill their pledges. This is not true. I mean, there might be other problems, but this is definitely not true. But the, the communication of that still has a long way to go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Therese Matis is an assistant professor of empirical democracy research. Thanks again for taking the time today. Thank you so much. This episode is all about the state of our democracies and moments that test our values. And right now we can really see that exemplified with the 2022 World Cup, which is underway in Qatar. It's an event that's been shrouded in controversy for years. Ahead of the games, there were large protests in Germany and calls for boycotts due to the treatment and deaths of migrant workers who had built the stadiums and other sites, as well as because of the country's anti-LGBTQ policies. These, among many other issues, certainly left a lot of fans not knowing what to do or how to engage with this year's games, and my next guest is one of them. Joining me now is Dustin George Miller. He is the managing editor of Cartilage Free Captain, a blog for Tottenham Hotspur fans. Dustin, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I just want to mention quickly that we're recording this conversation on November 21st. So Dustin, as I mentioned, you reflected long and hard about covering the World Cup. In the end, what was your main reason for deciding to do so? So it was a struggle for me as I was trying to process this, because this is a very uh, interesting and unique World Cup for many reasons, uh, mostly negative ones. There are people who I know of personally who are planning to avoid the World Cup entirely in protest of, of Qatar and their regressive policies and their dis- discrimination against homosexuality and LGBTQ plus uh, individuals. There are other people who are just switched off. They're, they're interested in the games and they're interested in the sporting aspect of it, but they're not really engaging it in the same way. So I struggled with this too, because I felt the same kind of uh, push and pull from uh, these kind of interactions with others. And I wondered, should I make some kind of a protest on the blog? Should I refuse to cover? Should we talk about something else and just pretend this isn't happening? Ultimately, I decided not to do that and to cover this because, uh, for one thing, not everybody agrees with me. And if I were to make a protest, it'd be a, it'd be a political stand, and I'd be okay with that. But a lot of other people would think otherwise, and they want to know about the games. They want to know about the Tottenham players that are playing in the World Cup. That's important to them. So it, for me, this was a way I decided to cover the World Cup, take a narrower view of it, but also try to shine a light on some of the injustices and stories that might not all otherwise be covered in some of the larger media. Yeah. What are some of those issues that you're keeping an eye on? One of the issues that we've covered that's been kind of a microcosm of some of the larger ones is the One Love campaign uh, that was signed on by numerous European nations that were set to wear rainbow armbands in, in, in the matches as a token gesture of promoting in- inclusivity. And, you know, we found out this morning that uh, the that FIFA has cracked down pretty hard on that. And, and the national team um, captains that were going to wear the One Love armband were now set to be issued with uh, yellow cards, uh, which is a pretty big impact for uh, for these these teams. If you get another one, you're out of the game. So you're based in the Midwestern United States and the Tottenham Hotspur Football Club is for those not yet acquainted, um, a professional football club based in London. So before I ask you how you joined the fandom yourself, I want to ask, you mentioned that not all of your readers appreciate your decision to cover the World Cup. Do you feel it's something that's dividing the community or do you feel it's opened the discussion in a way where there's been some respectful dialogue? 
I think it's both. There's absolutely some um, some pushback and some division here, a lot of division, because you have a, a certain subset of fandom that uh, the, all they care about is the game. Uh, they want to watch the game. They want to watch the national team play. They want to watch the best players in the world play in a World Cup. And they don't care about the other stuff. They don't want that interfering with their enjoyment of the game. And that's understandable. But uh, you know, there's also another uh, entire host of, of fans that are conscious of this because they know that sports and, and politics and, and sociopolitical action are all intertwined and there's really no unentwining them anymore. So that's why, you know, we promote a lot of um, healthy discourse and we try to in our blog. And so we're getting that. We're getting a lot of that uh, where we we push and pull back and forth in the comments and, and we talk about these things. And there's a lot of support on my particular blog, but it's not universal by any means. And uh, that's something that, that fans will continue to struggle with as they consume this particular World Cup content, but also in the future. Because as we've seen and as we know, uh, these issues aren't going to be going away. They're going to pop up in future World Cups, maybe even in the next World Cup, which will be hosted by the USA, Mexico, and Canada. And lastly, how did you become a Tottenham Hotspur fan in the first place? So it's a great story. Um, what really got me into soccer was the 1994 World Cup in the United States. But what got me into Tottenham Hotspur was I was invited to watch some soccer with some neighborhood guys. And they would record Premier League games. They were a little less successful back then. Um, and we'd go and we'd watch. But the one rule they had for me was that I had to pick a team. So I did what any, any American does when confronted with something new, especially a new sports league. I did research. I researched all the teams that I wanted to get into. And I kind of fell in love with this crazy club in North London with a silly name. And it's been, you know, more than a decade now. And I I, I love this club and I, I'll never go back. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of what I'm sure will be a, a busy schedule for you over the next few weeks. Dustin George Miller is the managing editor of Cartilage Free Captain, a blog for Tottenham Hotspur fans. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me. Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast. Today, we're talking about democracy and what it means to be political and stand up for democratic values. Joining me now are two people who wrestle with some of these questions in their writing. With us from the U.S. is Jada Tavares. She's Connecticut's inaugural Youth Poet Laureate. Thanks for being here, Jada. Thank you for having me. And with us from Germany is slam poet Noah Klaus. Welcome, Noah. Yeah, nice to be here. Nice to be on your show. So I want to start with you, Jada. Your first body of work is a poetry chapbook called Dare I Say. And on the cover, you included the definition of the expression, quote, one uses dare I say when they are aware that what they are about to say will disappoint or annoy someone. Did you imagine that your chapbook was going to disappoint or annoy someone? And if so, who did you have in mind? Well, my chapbook was, I guess, inherently political. There was always some kind of underlying element through it. So I feel I feel like in my chapbook, I said a lot of, I guess, taboo topics, and I addressed them in a way that was very unapologetic and unyielding. So I that, that was the title I picked, yeah. And, and so what were some of those topics that you addressed in unyielding ways? There's this one poem, it's one of my favorites, and it's titled Five Stages of Grief. And the whole purpose of this poem is like how Black America grieves with the loss of their ancestors. So it's this whole body of work just saying like, this this is what Black America's struggle is like, and this is how it's political, and this is how it's metaphorical, and all of these things. So again, not, not something that is always spoken about. Another topic in there, I think I talk about abortion rights and things like that. So very much in your face, I guess. 
So, Noah, in your poems, some of the things you talk about are climate change, big business, and often about how Germany seems a bit like a bully. For example, in your piece titled, The German Michel Takes Inventory of Europe. Uh, That would be the English translation of it. What bugs you most about Germany? What's some of your critique? Yeah, Germans like to regard themselves as, you know, something like the proud owners of an economic powerhouse or something in Europe and one of the countries where you can still find, you know, discipline and hard work, etc. And there are a lot of people who tend to have this very rigid, yeah, let's say ideology. Yeah, like German sentence, wenn ich arbeitet, soll auch nicht essen. So who doesn't work should not eat or something like this. And this became very obvious in the last decade, I think, when Greece was like in dire need of financial help. And if you listen to Germans, Back at that time, you could have had the impression they pay, like paid for Greece's uh, debts themselves, like personally. <laughs> Maybe that's what bugs me the most. I think Germany tends to be very dismissive towards Southern and Eastern Europe, even though there is uh, there is no real reason for it because German economy is dependent on consumers and so on, um, and on migrants willing to work for German companies. And so this is like a little hypocritical sometimes. Jada, you were a Democracy 2022 Summer Fellow with the Democratic National Committee. What are some of the impressions that you took away from that fellowship? I'll go with inefficiencies for the first one. It's just like the way that things, the way that things are gone about are never efficient enough in my, in my eyes, in my eyes. Like it, it's just not, it's not done in a way that makes sense. For example, I was helping out campaigning and for whatever reason we were campaigning on a Sunday when no one was home. So it's like, okay, we're going to vote. We're going to get all these kids and we're going to mobilize them because they want to help. And they are dedicated to preserving the democracy in the United States. And they are so excited to advocate and knock on doors, but we're going to do it at a time when no one is home. And we're also going to do it in an area that is assured to be democratic again. And it's like, why are we wasting energy, time and resources? So that's my biggest critique. But like that, take that like little story and like apply it to everything. And that's how I would explain it. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question for you. Uh, yeah. ha- has there been in the last, I don't know, two or three years or the years you have been active, um, are there people thinking about like introducing a, a third party or is it just about... Um, making the Democratic Party more efficient or changing it in a way that suits people uh, better? We are so divided that the chances of a third party are near impossible. Yeah, that's that's yeah. it. Oh, oh, wow. Short answer. <laughs> wow. Noah, as a German watching what's going on in the U.S. from a distance, how would you compare it to Germany? What's your feeling? Yeah, I... I remember like two or three years ago, or I don't know, it was still under Trump. Uh, I had a like an argument with a friend about which democracy is more more stable, like the, the German one or the, the American one. Wait, so you were going back and forth with your friend arguing if the US or Germany is better? No, the question was which one is more stable like in in, in face of uh, the, the, the dangers of the far right, which both countries uh like like have there is uh there is a fraction of the the republican party which is now really bonkers in my eyes <laughs> and um 
you also have the the the, the dangers of far right militias here in Germany. So the threat is real in both countries. But um, my question or the question of me and my friend was, which country is like more resilient? Let's say. And do you think you came to any sort of conclusion there? No, history is always in the flow. I think. <laughs> Jada, you mentioned that experience of being part of a group of young people who had been mobilized to go out and knock on doors on a Sunday only to realize that people weren't home and, you know, how that's a bit illogical. Do you feel like your generation wants to be political but doesn't know the tools or do you feel like they're finding other ways to get active in our democracy? That's a really good question. Okay, I think that a lot of young people do want to go out and they do want to help and they are ready to mobilize. I believe that to be true. But I also believe that we're a product of the political system, right? So we are also another hugely divided generation in itself. So yeah, I do agree that there are young people that do want to go out. And I do think they have the resources depending on the areas you're in. Noah, what about your generation here in Germany? What, you know, same question. In a certain sense, my generation is very political. I mean, millennials and Gen Z, they have something to say and they have something they want, but they have problems conveying their messages. I mean, just look at Fridays for Future, Last Generation, Stop Oil, etc. This whole environmental activism. We are actively urging lawmakers and politicians to reverse course and to stop the dangerous status quo, let's say. So there is really yeah, something going on, but... They are vilified for that. They are portrayed as dangerous radicals and so on. And this attitude towards people in Germany has deeper roots because uh, Germany is one of the countries with the oldest population in the world. I mean, just imagine 22% of people are over 65 years old. Yeah, the boomer generation partly ignores the demands of, of, the, of the younger people and young people can't outvote them because the boomers are still in the majority. This problem doesn't exist in this dimension in the US, but demographic changes are a real danger for democracy, I think. Jada, to kind of wrap up here, do you consider yourself active in our democracy? Um, I guess, I think as a person, you have to be active. So I'll go with yes. What kind of ways does that manifest? Or what does it mean for you to be active? I think to be active is to understand what's happening around you, to engage with your community, and to be able to speak about issues in a way that you are only speaking from like factual, from a factual standpoint. And what about you, Noah? Yeah, I would say being political means to have a stance like and to defend one's opinion in, in the public uh, space. Um, and this can be like in a conversation, this can be uh, on stage, this can be like in a, in a podcast or radio show like the one we are doing right now. And this can be in a, in a political party. Noah Klaus is a teacher and slam poet, and Jada Tavares was Connecticut's inaugural Youth Poet Laureate and is a freshman at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you to everybody for tuning in. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Live and WNHU at the University of New Haven. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Muller-Kroll. As I mentioned at the top of the program, this will be my last episode as host for now. Thank you for spending your time with us over the last 18 months. It really has been a true honor. And remember that you can find all episodes of Tearing Down Walls in your podcast feed wherever you get good podcasts. Thanks again, and take care.